Hello, my name is Larry Lannon, the writer behind the local Fishers Indiana news blog, LarryInFishers.com. I started the blog in January of 2012, and it is still going. Four years after that, in 2016, I started the LarryInFishers.com podcast series featuring guests of local interest. That podcast is still going strong. Now, if you like the podcast and are listening on a platform such as iTunes, I'll just take a moment, rate and comment on my podcast series. It's time now for the latest LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm at the Hamilton East Library in downtown Fishers, the Ignite Studio on the lower level of the library, and it's uh, a great pleasure to welcome Caitlin Lang back to my podcast. It's been a few years since you have been on the podcast. Uh, she is a journalist, covered the State House for many years, and has just uh, begun working for a, a new operation called State Affairs, and we'll talk at some length about that. In fact, I'll start off with that, Caitlin. Welcome, first of all. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh Talk about why you decided to leave the Indianapolis Star and join this brand new operation. Sure. I was really excited to uh, move to somewhere that was focused on exclusively state government. That's obviously what I'm very passionate about. I think there is just so much that can be covered on the state government front. So I was really excited to move to a paper that solely focuses on that and not even just that, but also focused on the policy that impacts real Hoosiers. State affairs is less focused on, you know, covering government meetings. That stuff's already covered to an extent. So uh, with state affairs, I can focus more on deep dives into policy, investigations, longer stories, get at the root of what policies actually mean for real Hoosiers. So that was a really, really exciting prospect for me. And then obviously, it is a startup. I was, I think, employee number 12. So it's very neat that I get to kind of help shape the company. Uh, Before I was hired, actually, they didn't have a parental leave policy when I was interviewing. I asked about that, and they ended up creating one for me. So it just that's the kind of things when you're working for such a small company, you get to kind of impact the culture there. And I thought that was really neat. Yeah, I I remember having a news director many years ago when I made my living as a radio journalist, and he would always say, I need people news. And what he was saying is, I want, okay, you can cover the state house. How does this affect real people? That's what I'm hearing you say. That's what your focus is going. Obviously, you have to cover the the other things, uh, but you are going to cover what, what impacts people. And all the things I want to ask you about will have some impact on people one way or the other. And I want to talk about the very first piece that I saw published on State Affairs that you had written. And it, it's about which issues are likely uh, to have the lawmakers' attention? You know, we go through Christmas and New Year's, and it's not too many days after that that the legislative session starts on January the 9th. Now, the, the, the first thing you wrote about in that piece about what's coming up is likely to be discussed is affordable housing, which is something where I cover the city of Fishers as a volunteer journalist, uh, just had a recent meeting on that. And they're going to have to make some decisions on a comprehensive report that was commissioned by this city. And there are places all around the state looking into this issue. A legislature can have a lot to say about this one way or the other, encourage it or didn't discourage it. What did you take away from the conversations you had with people at the legislature about what may or may not happen on affordable housing? Yeah, it's it's hard to tell what actually will be proposed once you see session. Um, a lot of these proposals came out of a study committee, which 
you know, lawmakers always study study a bunch of issues every year, and they don't always end up turning into law. So you never totally know what's actually going to happen. But um, I'm really curious to see. I think one of the big issues on this front is just a lack of supply in general. So this is, you know, for lower income, middle income Hoosiers, all of it, there just isn't as much supply in Indiana as maybe there should be. Um, And I think some of that stems from the lack of housing builds after the recession in 2008. You know, we never really picked that back up again. So one of the things I'm hearing that might turn into a policy is sort of um, like tax uh, or, or, or I guess more of um, grants for for infrastructure needs like sewer, roads, that sort of thing to help builders keep costs down in building. Um, there might also be other proposals as well, but that seems to be the one that's going to get the most legs during session. I know there are federal low-income housing credits that I believe are administered through the states. And I just having seen what happens when people propose loan, not, they don't like to call they like to call it affordable housing, not low income housing. But either way, that the competition for what's available on those tax credits it's it's cutthroat. Only a very few places get that compared to how many are applying. So the so the what you're saying is that the state may offer grants not to build the housing but to get the infrastructure in to build the housing basically. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure there might be some more on the front of affordable housing as well, but it seems like the idea is okay, how can we encourage more builds of houses at Cheaper prices for all Hoosiers. You also mentioned cutting taxes, always a popular subject with the Republican Party in Indiana. That's not a surprise that that would be there. But something has really come up, I think, since you've written that piece, and you had asked the governor about this, uh, that at least in the Indiana Senate, there's a buzz going around about eliminating the state income tax. Now, I used to be a tax geek. I'm not anymore. But uh, I do know Indiana's income tax is really not very high. It's a pretty low. It's like, what, 3 4 5% depending on where you live in the state. Most counties have an option income tax if you have opted out of it. So uh, it's still just a few percentage points. Uh, but it is a tax. And there's a proposal to eliminate the income taxes. Some other states uh, have done. But to do that, and then you You've picked up on this, too. This this would require a major overhaul of the entire tax system of the state of Indiana. It would impact sales taxes, all kinds of other taxes. It may, some that have been eliminated, like the inheritance tax. So I'm just curious. Are you hearing anything about this? Because I think people say, hey, it would be a great idea to eliminate the income tax. But when it comes to how would we reorganize the tax system or make up that revenue, I hear a lot of silence on that. Yeah, I think – so most of the buzz I've heard about it is long-term they want to do this. You know, this isn't something that's going to come up this session. And at first I kind of blew it off when I heard about it. Um, but, you know, Senate Republicans have brought it up multiple times now that this is something they want to do in the future. So I think their first step is just studying it, answering the questions that you have of, okay, what are you going to replace those dollars with or what are you going to cut? Um, so, so I think this is a long-term thing. They're not doing this tomorrow, and they might change their minds once they get some of these studies back, I imagine. Um, and, and to your point, I did ask Governor Eric Holcomb about this during my one-on-one with him, and he didn't seem uh, all that that favorable about of doing this. He had 
concerns because, again, something's got to give if you do eliminate the income tax. And I think it's worth noting that lawmakers already lowered the income tax they voted to um, earlier this year. So as long as our revenues keep increasing, uh, Hoosier's income taxes are going to keep decreasing for a the time being. So they're already working on lowering it. It's just the question of, do you eliminate it completely? Isn't there an automatic trigger in the law that's still there that if uh, so much money accumulates in, 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 in the fund that they're not, I can't what they call it, the fund they're not using, that that triggers uh, an income tax cut? I, is that still in the law? Yeah, I think um, at this point, well, for the, the law that they just passed, I believe it's as long as revenues are 2% and higher, the income taxes will slowly be reduced over time. Uh, Todd Houston is the Speaker of the House. I've known him for some years. He's from Fishers. Uh, he wants to look at reimagining the high school experience. You wrote about that. Uh, you've talked to him. I think he's spoken mostly in press gaggles uh, for the most part. But based on what you've heard him say, what does he mean when he says he would like to reimagine the high school experience? So we won't know the exact details until we obviously see a bill or he rolls out his agenda, which should happen at the start of session. But it sounds like it's going to be perhaps a reduction in the number of uh, particular credits you need to graduate high school or the types of courses you need to graduate. Um, I know one one thing he mentioned, which I don't even think this is a requirement right now, but calculus. Not everybody necessarily needs calculus, depending on what you do with your life. I certainly did not take calculus, and uh, don't don't feel a hole in my life because I didn't. But so those those types of questions of okay, what courses do you actually need to graduate? You know, and and how can you be flexible so that this matches what you will need going forward, whether you move into a career or you go to college, I think is sort of his big picture idea there. Yeah, the CTE training, which they used to call vocational education many in in ancient times when I went to school. uh, CTE is career technical education and is for people who maybe don't want to go to college, but there are many high paying jobs out there for people who want to get into some other kind of profession. Uh, I know that. Hamilton County, for instance, has just uh, formed a group to have their own CTE, which had never happened before, and all six of the school corporations are part of that. So I think there's a push on some local school corporations to do this. So what you're saying is you, you think the speaker wants to support that kind of thing. Yeah, and just change yeah change the required credits to graduate. Uh, it's interesting. I'm, I'm very curious to see how it will work out in practice, though, because Indiana already struggles with getting kids to go to college here. So I just, um, I'm wondering if this will help or hurt that cause. Yeah, we don't have a high percentage of our high school graduates that go to college. And the other part of that, I know you went to Ball State, uh, Indiana, Purdue, Ball State, there are many other great universities in the state of Indiana. And most studies have shown a large percentage of those graduates leave the state mm-hmm. because there are not job opportunities in their particular area. So they've got there are more than one issue there. But I, it's just a good thing they didn't require calculus when I had to graduate from high school. Same. <laughs> <laughs> I had enough trouble with algebra. Uh, you also report three things that are not likely to come up in a legislative session. Uh, you don't think that marijuana legalization, abortion, or the uh, an increase in the cigarette tax, any of those three are likely to be considered. Um, are they saying why? 
So I, I guess I would add one caveat that I'm sure someone will file bills on all three of those things. Well, and you bills know, could certainly. be filed. On, bills could be. We should say bills can be filed on anything, and only a small percentage are actually heard and get through. Right. But go ahead. I'm right. Sorry. Right. Yes. So, um, but I just don't think that those three would actually cross the finish line. Um, looking at marijuana, uh, you know, Holcomb has said repeatedly that he's waiting until the federal government does something on that, you know, changes actually the law surrounding that. So unless that happens between now and the end of session, I don't predict anything happening on that. Um, Further, no marijuana bills legalizing it have ever even received a committee hearing. So I think that's a pretty good sign that that bill has a long way to go before it's ready to actually be passed both chambers. Um, Cigarette tax increase, obviously, that's something that the health groups have wanted for years. You know, Senate Senate and House Republicans are still very skeptical just that they'll get enough support to raise the taxes. I think anytime you talk about raising taxes, it's just difficult for a Republican supermajority to stomach that. Um, and then the, the – what was my third one? The, the, I, the, the, the abortion is, yeah. is really still tied up in the courts. You know, the, the legislature already passed an abortion measure, which has been held up by the courts. So I think the legislature wants to wait and see how that works out in the court system before doing anything. Correct, correct. Yeah. They don't – you know, anything that they could do could not make a difference if, <laughs> if the court decides one thing or another. But I'm sure there's plenty they eventually will want to adjust with that law. It's just a matter of – Maybe not this session. So really, if you look at this, if you've been through Illinois, you see there are marijuana dispensaries there. Other states have raised the cigarette tax. So the legislature is deciding to leave some money on the table, but they just don't feel it's time. Or in your case, they just don't want to raise a tax on already Mm -hmm. uh, levied on cigarettes or a new marijuana tax, although other states are, I don't think it's a windfall, but they are getting money out of that. And and, uh, so it's interesting to see over time how that will work. But you're right. I I see no stomach for the current (laughs) lawmakers doing that. That's a pretty good uh, discussion. You uh, One issue that that you report on, and you had an extensive story, and I really was, I love this story. You said it was part one. I can't believe (laughs) there are more parts to come. Uh, but it was a, a, ter- a deep dive into public health funding in the state of Indiana. Um, and by any objective measure, and you do a lot of research and you throw out a lot of numbers and statistics. There are different ways to measure this, but any way you measure it, Indiana is near the bottom of all the states in public health spending. They just are, whether it's per capita or overall, however you want to run the numbers. It's We're not uh, – very high and that we're probably in the very low percentile. So after finishing part one of that <laughs> series, what uh, what did you take away from that? What do you want your readers to take away from that? I guess my big goal with the series in general is just to focus on that wherever you live in Indiana is dictating your health, uh, what you get in health care, and then also your health outcomes as well. Um, I think with part, part one, obviously, it was focused on public health care access um, I think the the important thing to take away from the article is, one, these local uh, health departments are underfunded and, you know, you kind of can't blame these local governments because they're balancing a lot of other things, you know, road funding, um, more tangible looking things that, you know, these non-health experts are automatically going to probably feel more inclined to fund. Uh, so really, 
you know, it's the state that could decide to put more money into this in order to sort of equalize the public health care that each person is getting, regardless of what county you live in. I know I, I had a couple examples in there. I was trying to, you know, point out the, the real world examples of how this money impacts you. In some counties, you can access tobacco cessation programs and others you can't. Um, in some counties, they aren't testing. They aren't providing lead testing. That's a big deal. Um, some counties are doing offering help with nutrition, uh, which should hypothetically help with our, our obesity rate here in Indiana, which is high. So the big picture is just depending on where you live, you may have these tools, you may not. I do remember what happened in Scott County. You know, they had a huge HIV outbreak, and it had to do with needles. It was uh, They were having difficulty with uh, drug abuse. Mm-hmm. And their public health department barely existed. It might have been one or two people. The state finally had to come in, but it took a while for that to happen, and a lot of people got very sick before that happened. So I think uh, you also brought up another a number of other examples. And isn't it something that where you live in Indiana dictates what kind of health care you're going to get, particularly in the public health system? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I live in Hamilton County and Marion County's next door, and you know their public health departments are pretty well funded, but you go other places in the state, and like you say. These small counties that don't have a lot of population, uh, they struggle with that. Yeah. I think it was also interesting. I talked to a number of local health departments, and it was intriguing seeing how because funding was so limited, they kind of had to pick and choose what they were focused on. Um, And so, you know, a a county that might have been not funded as well might have focused on one thing that another county didn't even just because of, you know, you have so little funds, you kind of just – choose what you focus on. But I did actually talk to Mayor Fadness. I, I didn't mm-hmm. end up um, including you know that interview in this particular story, but it was interesting seeing how they're using the funds for some of the mental health-focused initiatives here in this city. What happened here was was very interesting story because when, when COVID hit, at the very beginning, testing was what everybody said they needed. We had no vaccines or anything. And uh, Scott Fadness found he really didn't have a way to get a a testing program up and running locally. So he did something nobody had done in anybody's memory, created a city health department, which was available under state law, but nobody had ever done it. Uh, And I think that East Chicago, there's only three or four cities, because in Marion County, the city and the county are the same. But... uh, there are only a handful of, of city health departments, and Fishers is one of them. But that was a result of him seeing that he needed to have a testing program for his citizens and to keep businesses running so that their employees could be tested and so forth. So, But it is, and his mental health program started in 2015 when he started as, as mayor. So it's interesting you talk to him. I, there are a lot of public health issues that Fishers can talk about, yeah. having uh, covered it for a long time. So there'll be more on that, I assume, in parts to come. Yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll probably be talking about um, mental health, trauma care. That's kind of what we're envisioning for future series at this point, or one, future stories in the series. I'm glad to hear that, because one thing he told me is when he was town manager, before he was elected mayor, he would do ride-arounds with the police. And a police officer would show up at a scene and not know how to evaluate what was 
very possibly a mental health situation. So one of his goals was to at least have somebody available to come out there and say, yeah, this person needs to go in a hospital. Now, that person probably needs to go to jail. Just just making a quick evaluation of it, which a police officer, we ask a lot. I think we ask a lot of our police officers mm-hmm. already to being mental health professionals, I don't think is, is something we should ask of them. But I'm looking forward to, to seeing some of the following parts on public health. The, uh, the, I'm sorry, the governor uh, appointed a commission on public health, and one of the point persons on that uh, commission is Luke Kenley. For those of you who maybe haven't lived here a long time, uh, Luke Kenley was a longtime Noblesville state senator and for a very long time chaired the most powerful committee, I think, in the legislature, which is the Senate Finance Committee. Uh, so he was – again, he's out there now – selling the report that the commission has set out, and you talked to the governor about that too in your uh, discussion with him. Uh, Luke Kenley, though, I've, I've got to say something. I, you can react if you want or not. I don't know Luke Kenley. Well, I met him a couple of times. Very, very gracious man, very nice man. Enjoyed my, I never had a substitute conversation because he, you know, I cover Fishers and he's in Noblesville. But or wasn't, he's still in Noblesville, but was representing Noblesville, I think a small part of Fishers mm-hmm. at that time. But he talked to you, and he also talked to Pete Blanchard of the IBJ, and he basically said, you know, I until I got on this commission, I didn't realize how far behind we were in public health. But Luke Kenley was one of the leaders in the legislature all those years, and I I, I want to believe him, but uh, the idea that nobody ever told him we had problems with public health, is it's difficult to, to believe that because I think it was presented to maybe it didn't hit him at that time. Well, now that he's on this commission and he's focused, I was like, oh my gosh, we got a big problem with I public think, health, and I he's trying. The issue is and he's that, trying to, to sell it now to the legislature. Yeah, I think the issue is that public health is such a, a wonky term. Mm-hmm. What does it mean? What do local health departments do? You know, I just I think that's an idea that not many people grasp. Um, and obviously, Luke Kinley, I'm, I'm sure you know this. He was kind of. Um, he kept his wallet close to him. He wasn't. He wasn't a big spender when he was in charge of helping craft the budget when he was at the state house. He liked so, to cut taxes, though. Yes, yes. But, but spending Anything, was different matter. Yeah. Yes. So I just think the idea of um, sure we're not spending as much in this area, but I'm sure for someone like Luke Kinley, he didn't want to just give more money for for something that you know is kind of this ambiguous concept to some people. But I think the issue, and I'm sure you'll deal with this in in, in some of the other parts, and it's been written about by other journalists around uh, the state, that yes, we don't spend that much on public health, but I think we all need to consider what what price we pay for that because we're paying for it in other ways. What are you finding when you're you're reporting on this? Yeah, I mean, we're we're paying for it in terms of our... uh, so we're spending less on prevention and we're spending more on treatment as a result of this because there's a number of preventative diseases that perhaps Indiana wouldn't struggle as much with and we wouldn't have to pay to treat if if we didn't have that issue. So that is one of the big things that these these people trying to sell the report are focusing on as they talk to lawmakers. So it's going to be interesting to see how the current legislature reacts to this. I mean, it's a blue ribbon commission, people that they know and trust have been involved in writing this. There is a surplus we've all been talking about. There's a whole lot of competition to get that money. I think every state agency is, if, if they got their budget proposals, would be $100 million over or something. I remember, I don't recall the whole figure, but obviously, and that's 
happens a lot, but it's more so knowing that extra money is out there. Mm-hmm. And and it, it seems that the reaction so far has been, well, we want to spend more on public health, but not as much as they want. That's what I'm hearing. Right. I think the other sort of concern, and I didn't really realize this when I was writing the article, but I noticed it on the tweets to my article, is that there is a lot of skepticism about state health initiatives following COVID-19 and the response to that. There's a sort of fear of more state involvement in this when really you know, the state's just saying, look, we want to give you resources. We don't want to control you more per se. But I think that's a concern among some people. That's going to turn me to the uh, conversation we had with the governor that you wrote about. You had to sit down with him. And one of the issues that came up was his handling of the pandemic. And his handling of the pandemic, he faced criticism within his own party on this. And there were lawsuits filed. The courts have ruled. Um, it, well, the whole conversation got turned into a constitutional issue of the kind of uh, power grab, not power grab, but the balance of power between the Indiana state legislature and the governor. People need to realize this, and I know you do. Indiana's governor is a, a fairly weak constitutional office. I mean, you are the leader of the state. You make a lot of key appointments. You you run agencies or appoint, appoint people to do that. But the legislature passes a law or a budget Let's say the governor vetoes it, a simple majority can override that veto. So the right. governor doesn't have a lot of clout with the legislature. But yet in this case, you hear the pandemic happened. We had an emergency health situation. And the courts have – I mean the, the court decisions are a little complicated. But essentially I think what the judges are saying is, hey, if there's an emergency, like a health emergency, the governor is going to have to be given some leeway to do what he or she thinks is best. Is that what you came away with? Yeah, and I mean, the the other argument in the court was, can lawmakers call their own special session without the governor? Um, and so that, again, yeah, would have sort of taken some of the power, in a sense, away from Governor Holcomb, and again, an already weak uh, governorship here. But But yeah, I think there was also, there was a lot of criticism of... During the pandemic, you know, can Holcomb require people to wear masks? Mm-hmm. Can he require businesses to close? That sort of thing was kind of the ongoing conversation, if we remember way back in 2020. Oh, yes. I remember it well. And, and he was he, he defended that heavily in your conversation. Yeah. Yeah. He, he basically said he didn't have any regrets from his handling of the pandemic, um, which I think is is interesting, given the, the amount of sort of pushback we've seen on some of that, even this long after. Well, Scott Fandis, as mayor of Fishers, had the same pushback and he still defends that and says that he did what he needed to do to keep. You know, the business is open and people as healthy as possible. Mm-hmm. You also talked uh, with the governor about the budget. Indiana has what they call biennial budget, which is a fancy way of saying it's every two years. And uh, so in, in 2023, in that legislative session, the budget will be approved for the uh, – they have fiscal year beginning July 1 of 23 for that two-year period going from there. Um and you did talk with the governor about the issues that he are, is most concerned about in terms of budget. What did you come away with on that conversation about the budget? Yeah, I think he is pretty optimistic about how the budget looks. I think um, a lot of us were thinking, man, this budget doesn't look that amazing. It's not that much more cash. But when you look at it compared to what they were predicting 
last time around. It is it is a better prediction. So there is more money than I think they thought they were going to have. Um, Holcomb obviously is focused on the Public Health Commission's uh, request for the $243 million. He wants to provide that in year two of the budget. So that's a big one. You know, obviously, K-12 spending, we can expect an increase on that. It's just probably a matter of how much. Um, and then obviously, I think we'll see some money for uh, the ready sort of development grants that we have seen around the state. Um, so I think he is confident that he can still do everything he wants to in this budget. Yeah, and this region has used that money to develop along the White River. And uh, that has been a very big project all the way from Marion County all the way up to Anderson and, and, and points north. And there'll be some development fishers plans right on the on the White River as a result of that ready grant. Um, so, yes, one thing I always find interesting, Caitlin, is that the, the, there's a discussion about the budget, yet the, f- the forecast for how much money they'll have doesn't come out until April. And that's near the end of the session. So they've done all this work. And then all of a sudden they've got more money than they think or less money than they think. If they're fortunate, the cut, you know, the, 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 the uh, how should I put it, the predictions that happened earlier in the year will stay constant. But in most years, it's not. So yeah. they have to scramble at the last minute, uh, the people working on the budget, to uh, either – reduce it to get it within the budget to see where they're going to spend extra money. I always found that interesting. Yeah, it's kind of a wild ride to cover it. It's it's very <laughs> interesting to be like, all right, they have all this money now, last minute, what are they going to do? And that was the case uh, two years ago. They came into more money, and it was a lot more money, and so it was very uh, kind of fun to see how they ended up using it. The governor, uh, you talked about this with him, has been very coy about his political future, obviously. He says he's focused on a legislative session. He's not thinking about running for the Senate. A lot of other Republicans are not bashful about it. They're ready to come in. Victoria Sparts, the congressman that represents the Fishers area, has been pretty clear she's looking into it. Others are as well. It would seem to me that uh, if the governor, after the legislative session is over, decides he wants to put his hat in the ring on that, first of all, he would have Lots of sources for funding, which is important for a statewide race. But he's also got name recognition statewide that some of the others do not have. So it would seem to me that if he he has the ability to wait until after the spring and maybe into the summer to decide whether he wants to, to run for the Senate, it looks like he will, but he doesn't want to talk about it. It's hard to tell what he's thinking. Um, I, I honestly couldn't make a prediction one way or another if he's going to run or not. But you got to remember when Holcomb first ran for governor, he didn't start running for governor until the summer before, I think, when when Vice President Mike Pence got put on Trump's campaign. You know, so Holcomb's used to running these short campaigns. So I don't think he's too worried about it if he is if he does decide to run for Senate. And one thing I do have to bring up. You did ask the governor a question he said he had never been asked before. So what did you ask the governor that he had never been asked before? Yeah, I asked him uh, what was on his Spotify wrapped or Apple replay. So basically the song that he listened to the most this year. Um, and his answers, his top answer was Alive by Pearl Jam, followed by Right Now by Van Halen, and then Feeling Stronger Every Day by Chicago. So just a fun little insight into what gets <laughs> gets our governor through the weeks. Different eras of music, too, by the way. Yes, that's what they pointed out, too, when yeah. I was uh, asked. 
asking, <laughs> but I um I sadly showing my age here of being too young. I didn't. I had to go look up those songs <laughs> when I got home. So. Well, Chicago, I you know I'm, I'm older, so I it's Chicago. I remember the others. I'm kind of familiar with, but no, it's it's interesting. I think you can say a little something about someone when you ask them what kind of music they listen to. So I think it was a legitimate question. He seemed to enjoy getting that question. Yes, yes. He said it was one he had. It's so it is challenging. Um, every media outlet, for the most part, gets a one-on-one interview with Holcomb at the end of the year. So you're you're just kind of trying to think. All right, what's a unique question to ask, and uh, what what can I do to get to know him a little bit better? I, it's always been a compliment to me anytime I have interviewed anybody in this. Nobody's ever asked me that yeah. question. Thanks for asking. doesn't happen often, I must tell you, because some questions you just have to ask, even though others are, are doing it too. I want to talk about the State House and, and the way it's covered, because I can remember, I never covered the State House on a regular basis, but I, when I worked for the network, Indiana Radio Network, years ago in the early 80s, I would be sent to the State House every now and then to cover something. And what I noticed was just how many news outlets had reporters covering the state house. I went when I was working in Columbus, Indiana, I was uh, at a news conference the governor had at that time because there was a big a big announcement affecting the the local area. Couldn't believe all the reporters that showed up in the governor's office for this news conference. Almost any newspaper of any size at least covered the session. Some of them covered the state house year round. And she, things have greatly changed since then. Uh, people really talked about how the state house press corps had kind of hollowed out to just a very few people compared to where it had been. Now we're seeing a, a bit of a renaissance. Now we see, and they all have different models. You've got places like Chalkbeat and, and the uh, Capital Chronicle that have uh, have space uh, at the state house press corps, and they are nonprofits. That's their model. You've got Axios, which is coming soon, and they are uh, an advertiser-based model. You at State Affairs have a different model. You have a subscription model. It means that you, you have uh, material, but you must be a subscriber to read. I think you might get a couple of paragraphs, and I say, please sign up. I'm proud to say I have already signed up. I'm already a subscriber. And uh, Ryan Martin is, 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 a, is a fellow journalist that came from the star to, to – uh, uh, to state affairs as well, and he'll be writing for uh, for that uh, website as well. So explain uh, how that model works for you because you're just now beginning to – I think there's one in Georgia, and I think you're the second yeah. state house to, to, to be brought up and, and, and be available and, and is ready for people to subscribe and read. So talk about that. Uh, subscription model and how it works. Yeah, so right now we are um, a subscriber uh, outlet, so to read any of our stories on our website, for the most part, I think you get like one free story or something like that. But for the most part, you need to be a paid subscriber. I think it equals out to about $100 per year, about um, eight or nine dollars per month. So it's not not you know it's it's if you get two Starbucks drinks, you're already there <laughs> there for a month. But so right now that is the model. I think what is sort of interesting about state affairs is because we are such a young company, we are prepared to adapt and change. Like, you know, I think um, we would look at potentially using ads in the future. Um, so I, I, I don't think we will necessarily always stay just subscri- a subscription model, but, you know, we're obviously we are different than the for the non not-for-profit models in that we are trying to figure out how can we make journalism sustainable and, you know, in a for-profit way instead of just opening all these nonprofit organizations. 
Yeah, nonprofits, I mean, I, I love them, but you are right. They are dependent on how many people decide to contribute or if they have certain foundations that if they have to go in another direction or don't have the money. So it, it, it is always based upon on that funding model, and, and you are trying to get your subscribers to, to pay for it. Uh, so it, that is a different model, and, and I'm hoping that – State had the state house news, which is so important to everybody in the state, is it will continue to be covered by more news outlets, yeah. uh, and and that's that's so important to everyone. But you know something, just quick comment from you. Even with all that happening, those being encouraging, I I still see more newspapers closing all the time at the local level. Yeah. What really made me sad is my my parents grew up in a little town near near a little town, Lagodi, Indiana, southwest Indiana, Martin County. Um, they have had a newspaper in Lagodia Weekly that began right after the Civil, uh, Civil War. It started publishing right after the Civil War, and two years ago it closed down. And I, you know, my dad subscribed to Easter Read. It was your typical small town paper. You know, just every any little local thing was was in that newspaper. And those newspapers are dying. And and uh, last I saw, two newspapers a week are closing. In the United States, and that I think came from Pointer Institute, which does a pretty good job of, of uh, tracking those things. So even though the state house reporting is, is getting a bit of rejuvenation, we need a model, an economic model that will work at the local level, yeah. don't you think? I agree. I mean, I think even when you look at – so I was uh, the Evansville Courier and Press state house reporter for – maybe three months before they got rid of the position. And when you're a more localized reporter reporting for one paper out, you know, not in central Indiana, it's a lot different of a focus than those who live and work for Indianapolis-based papers. Um, I mean, there were just certain bills that they cared about in Evansville that they didn't care about elsewhere necessarily as much. I remember there was, uh, during my time down there, there had been a kid that died after an ATV accident. And so when I was the Evansville reporter, I was covering a bill that would change ATV laws. And that was something that probably wouldn't have been covered had I not been working for Evansville Courier and Press. So I think it's I think it's so sad. And I think one of my goals is to remember that Indiana's a big state and I do want to create stories that the whole state can sort of, you know, see themselves in. Like I don't want to just focus on central Indiana in my reporting. And I think that's some of why I'm focusing on the rural communities and some of my health reporting. Because that's a way for you to start uh Covering news outside that that statehouse bubble or Marion County bubble, right. if you want to call it that, because uh, exactly right, local newspapers and news organizations have issues at the statehouse that may not impact the rest of the state, but may impact. And you get to know the lawmakers in that area who are pushing that, and you can follow that. Uh, just one last question, uh, without giving too much away, uh, what are you working on right now? I am mostly working on the the next uh, stories in the healthcare series, so um, I'm, I'm really looking at trauma as sort of my next uh, big area that I'm looking into. And uh, Ryan Martin is your partner there. Uh, when will we start to see some of his material? You should start seeing some of those stories next week. He's been working on some cool things as well. Uh, I think you'll you'll see some of our longer term stories pop up more after Christmas. I think people prefer some of the lighter, shorter things right now to get through the holidays. So 
come January, you'll be seeing some some more cool things from us. And how do people find the website for State Affairs? It's uh, I, I don't have it memorized. I think you can always Google State Affairs, and you can it'll come up that way. Yeah, you can go to stateaffairs.com. And you'll what you'll see originally, you'll see Georgia and Indiana. And if you do sign up and, and become a subscriber, Indiana will come up right away. Right, right. And the other thing to point out, we do have a free newsletter that's weekly and so that you can sign up for it without paying. And it gives you sort of the the news that you need to know of that week, uh, some some fresh content that you're not going to find elsewhere. Like today I asked, uh, I asked the gubernatorial candidates what their top songs of the year were as well. So that was in, <laughs> in today's newsletter. So uh, yeah. And then you'll see small parts of our story in that newsletter as well. Being totally fair. Everybody gets their chance with the favorite songs. Caitlin Lang, always a, always a joy to talk to you. Good luck uh, covering the coming legislative session. And good luck with the new job of State Affairs. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. If you'd like to comment on my blog, please do so with any suggestions. In the meantime, please be safe and be kind.